We've been going through a summer series on uh, discipleship matters, kind of a play on word words, because we're looking at the aspects of discipleship um, that are important, and it's important for us to do. And we learned about that as we looked at the definition of discipleship and counseling. Counseling is basically just intensive discipleship. And so everyone is supposed to be a part of discipleship and, and helping one another. And that's our goal, and that's our desire. And so we've been looking at it all summer, and we want uh, to become better at discipleship as we look at the, that as our focus for the next 5, 10, 15 years, really to knuckle down and become better, better at discipleship. So we've been looking at that as well. And, and looking at human nature and the effects of sin, and realizing uh, basically it's in our human nature to, to basically minimize the effects of sin or to minimize sin altogether. And we fail to realize that many times when we do that and we minimize those things in our life, that we really minimize the effect of God and what, and what God wants to do in our life. And the more that we magnify ourselves, the more we minimize how great God is. And, and for the last four weeks, we've been talking about having a high view of God, it's really to make God bigger in our life and not to minimize God. And so the, one of the aspects of making God bigger in our life is having a proper view of ourself. How do we really view ourselves? And how we really view ourselves really determines the actions and the thoughts, and it really culminates in all that we do through the week. And so it's important for us to really have a high view ourselves. And part of having a high view of ourselves is really being conscious of sin and really looking at us. A.W. Tozer, if you've never written, uh, written, <laughs> read any of his books. He wrote a, a bunch of really good ones. The Pursuit of God uh, is a great classic. And he says this, the poor quality of Christian that grows out of our modern evangelistic meeting may be accounted for by the absence of real repentance accompanying the initial sp spiritual experience of converts. And the absence of repentance is the result of an in adequate view of sin and sinfulness held by those who present themselves in the inquiry room or the room to get saved. And he said, no, and he said this, uh, John Bunyan said this, no fears, no grace. And he goes on to say, though there is not always grace where there is fear of hell, yet to be sure there is no grace where there is no fear of God. And many times we have more fear of, our, of what can happen to us or more fear of people than we do of God. And therefore we have a, not a right view of God. We don't really consider how great he is, but we want to consider ourselves great. And so we magnify ourselves, and in doing so we minimize the Lord. And that's what we want to look at this morning. We're really going to do a deep dive in how modern man views themselves and how to deal with themselves, and then we're going to look at what God says about that, about that view. What does the Bible say about that view? And then we're going to look at the results of that through the illustration of Paul himself. Paul um, talked about himself a lot, 
And so we're going to look at how he described himself and how he viewed himself. And so would you pray with me as we begin this process of diving into God, uh, God's view of us and what he does for us in that. Lord, we thank you for this time as we gather together. Um, Lord, may we not minimize the importance of how we see ourselves. And Lord, may we, may we long to look upon your glory. May we long to be uh, growing in your grace that you have provided for us and through the gospel and the work of the gospel. May we run every day back to that great news, what you have done for us. May we find refuge in that. May we not look to find refuge in the things of this world that are fleeting or in, that are as Ecclesiastes and as this Solomon wrote that they are just vain things that are fleeting and far, far from our grasp. Lord, uh, the things around us are always changing, but yet, Lord, you remain the same. So help us in our understanding in this and help us to understand why this is so important. May we not just push it aside. Help us, teach us, and guide us. Help uh, my words that would only reflect your words, that we would follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In being conscious of ourselves, uh, we have to look at how the, the culture defines man. Uh, they've been doing it for centuries, and it's amazing how even if you go back and look at the history of how man views himself, you can go right back to Genesis and look at Adam, and you can look at the problems right from the very beginning. And a lot of these things through history match. As we distill down to just five basic views, we see that nothing really has changed. These views of man really has been perpetuated, and we dare see by the scheme of the evil one, the ruler of this age or ruler of this world, um, and a short rule that he will have because one day uh, Christ will return and will lock him up. Uh, we're talking about Satan. And his scheme has always been for us to think about ourselves uh, that would contradict the way that God sees us. And so we want to look at that this morning. And we see these five common characteristics of man. And these are varied methods that the world uses, that the culture uses, to basically help solve all of man's problems. Here's the first one. Man is good. Uh, the basic idea and prevalent in our society is that all men are good. And they start from that, that premise. But it doesn't take very long if you turn on the news to realize that mankind and humankind, no matter who you are, where you come from, it doesn't look that good, does it? Um, you quickly get tired of what you see and you turn it off, right? Uh, and, and man makes movies about how great man is. We love our superhero movies, right? And magnifying uh, man and all of that. And really what it does... It distracts us, and we keep that common thing, and it's like, oh yeah, we can be good, we can be good. And it's to drive us to that. But it really minimizes how wonderful God is. 
You know, what is really, we see this in the world and the theories of man as good is found in, in humanism or the independence of God and trying to develop an independence from God. We see it in New Age, the New Age movement. And that is that man has everything necessary within himself to solve his own problems. And yet we see man running uh, to many different things to try to find a solution to their problems. And we see that it really doesn't work. And they say that we can draw from our own resources to help self. And we get self-absorbed. So what does God say about that? Well, we turn to basically Romans chapter 3, verse 10, tells us everything we need to know. And it's quoting Isaiah and quoting a few other books. Um, even uh, the Psalms quotes this. And it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understand, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's not a very good description of man, is it? That kind of brings us down to earth. It kind of takes the wind out of our sails. At verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Why does man really think that they're good? Well, the result is, is they've began to fear more about themselves than they do fear the Lord. And in verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Well, how about Romans 7, 18? It says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. This is Paul's idea. It says, this is what God gave Paul to write down to the Roman church. And what is God telling us? Well, Paul didn't think that there was anything good in him. Save the Lord. He says in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Wow. Paul's saying, really, the reality is, is that we are not good, and we don't have the ability to carry out what is really good, even though I know what I want to do that is good. If I try to do it on my own ability, I'm going to struggle, is the idea. How about Romans 8.8? 8? It says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And the reality is, as we come to this realization that man has a problem. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural man or the natural way of thinking for man, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They've been blinded by, by Satan. They've been blinded. He goes on to explain all this and that they don't have the Holy Spirit to, to show them what is good and that they are truly not good. In fact, if you wanted to realize what we really are without God, just read Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you were dead in the trespasses of your sin. It doesn't get worse than that, does it? If we want to really think, if you really want to, if you feel puffed up and you feel like you've done something great, just go to um, the doctor or go to Ephesians chapter 2. The doctor is like, yep, you're turning 50. <laughs> I went in and complaining about all sorts of things and she just looked at me and laughed and she goes, it's just because you're getting older. <laughs> I was like, thanks doc. That's not what I wanted to hear on my birthday. <laughs> right? But this, the reality is, is we're dead 
right? That takes a lot out of our sales. So man says, oh yeah, we're good. God says, we're not. <laughs> it's a big not, right? Yeah. How about this? It says man is a superior animal, right? We've all, we've all come from animals and we're a superior animal. Man says the basic view of man is that his behavior is wrongly conditioned or programmed by his environment and circumstances. And they've been going on for years and saying that, well, you're, we're basically just animals and a lot of the instincts and a lot of the problems we have are because of the condition of just coming from an animal. And so we see the byproduct of that thinking in all the way that society acts like an animal. We see that in a lot of the uh, uncontrollable way that people treat each other. Well, it's just because we're basically just a superior animal. And the idea is, is that, well, man needs to be reconditioned or reprogrammed by manipulation or behavior through uh, positive and negative stimulus. He is artificially uh, altered and maneuvered to respond to reward and punish punishment in order to improve self. Basic idea of Pavlov's dogs, right? You put enough incentive in front of them, they'll salivate for what is good. And, and we see that that doesn't work. You know, we try to recondition and, and just give, oh, if you just treat me this way, everything will be good. And they do that and it just gets worse. Man has a way of taking anything that's good and destroying it. What does God say? Whoop, I went forward. What does God say? And if, just look at John 15, verses 4 through 5. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he is, is the one who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Our life is in the hands of God. It comes from God. Our ability to do the things that we do, any good thing that comes uh, from us is from the Lord. Romans 1, verse 18 through 23, continues this idea that we didn't come, we're not a superior animal, but that actually we come from the Lord. And it, and it reminds us that this would be the way that people thought. They would they would reject God and turn to the creation and get their instincts from creation rather than the truth of God. In verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness uh, of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They hold the truth down. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man birds and animals and creeping things. They turned away from the image and glory of God to that of creation. And we see that in this viewpoint. And we say, you know what? We are not conditioned uh, by our surroundings because we're just growing up as animals. 
We see that never more plainly than in Psalms 139. Do you want to know how amazing you are in God's sight? Read Psalm 139. You're struggling in your viewpoint of yourself? Go to Psalm 139 and look at the psalmist, what he says. Oh Lord, verse 1, you have searched me and known me. You've known everything about me, he says in verse 2. Verse 5, he says, you have hemmed me in behind and before, and you have laid your hand upon me. You have knit me together, he says. Verse 13, he goes on, he says, for you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame has not been hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, he was, you were intrinsically, or you were uh, woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me. Unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. God knows every little molecule about your life before, during, and after. You were formed by God, for God, by God. Everything, you're not, you're not a superior animal, you're a creation from the Lord. From even before you were conceived. God has known you. Man says that you are a superior animal. God says you're my creation. You're my beloved creation. Man, by the way, it's, you know, it's funny. It's, it's, the first theory of man is that man is good. Man is a superior animal. That's conditioned by his surroundings, by how he has evolved. But then it says, there, number three is that man can change himself. Although being wounded by the circumstances of life, man can change bad behavior. This is a combination of all the above positions that enough education, logic, and reason, man can overcome self. You can better yourself. It just kind of goes back to theory number one. What does God say about that? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament when it's interestingly enough is um, we see in Ezekiel, Ezekiel's talking to Israel, and you think about, talk about learning about how to have a right view of self. We know Israel struggled in that, and how they viewed God, and how they viewed themselves. They believed this. They believed that they could become better, and they could be good, and that they could change themselves, and they did it by following a bunch of rules and laws, and they expanded all of God's laws to the point where they forgot even who God really was. And Ecclesiastes 36 the prophet proclaims God's word to Israel and it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules course we know that was he was prophesying the coming of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit in our life it's interesting is is like I'm the one that's going to change your heart I'm the one that's going to going to bring you back up I'm the one that's going to heal you it's not man that changes 
But it's God that changes us from within. Israel tried to do everything within their power to change who they were from the outside to look good. And yet God is saying, look, I'm going to give you the spirit to change you from, I'm going to change your heart. And you will change from the inside out. A, a, a changed heart, uh, that, one that God changes is the one that will change and look godly. Is the one that their heart has been changed by God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says this, what does God say about man can change himself? It says, verse 16, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Where does freedom come from? From the Spirit of the Lord. Who changes our life? The Spirit of the Lord. All of this comes from the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, we are a new creation in Christ. Verse 18, he says, why are, why are we a new creation in, because of Christ? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18, for all this is from God. God changes us. Ephesians 2, we talked about it in verse 1. It says, you were dead in the trespasses of sins and once you once walked according to the course of this world. When we were walking according to the course of this world and the philosophies of this world, we were dead in our sins, but then Christ came and the Holy Spirit made us alive. He changed us. He took us from dead to life. And he changed us. The reality is this, as man... The world says man can change, but the reality is, is man will always struggle with himself. God says, I can change you. I will change you. That's that book uh, I quoted from a, couple, or a week ago uh, from Tim Chester's book, You Can Change. Why? Because it's not within ourself to change. It's God that changes us. It's our view of God. It's trusting God. The fourth view that the world despises is this, is that man is a victim of circumstances. It's not our fault. You know, all the problems you have, by the way, it's not your fault, right? It was coined back in the 60s, the devil made me do it, right? It was the devil made me do it defense. It worked, and now it, it you know, worked once, but then they, got, they figured out how to unwork it. Now it doesn't work anymore. Um, now they just plead insanity, um, so they, they stopped. Now it's the insanity defense. Like, you know, my circumstances have changed to where I can't help myself anymore. And so now it's crazy, but lawyers have to be, um, you know, they have to be perfect psychologists to get past this insanity defense and prove that they actually wanted to do it. It's crazy. But this is the idea is, is that man is a victim of circumstances. Man is driven by instincts. Thwarted by family problems, by society problems, by upbringing, and by others who are responsible for his problems. So therefore, man needs deep analysis along with hypnosis and re-socialization and catharsis and self-actualization. Let's dive more into yourself. You know, of course, you have a problem with yourself, so let's dive more into that. It just doesn't make logical sense. But man is a victim of circumstance. So what does God say? Here's just a few things. 
I can't cover all of this, so I put a lot of verses in your notes. It's for you to study and to see what God says. John 9, 1-3 says, As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. Right? Here's a blind man. He was born that way, you know, so it's, he can't help himself. Right? And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And the common reality was is that sin caused this man to be blind. And it was, you know, that God struck him blind. And so was it the parents' fault or was it his fault? And look what Jesus says. And Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. It's all about God's work. And, and this is the reality. Is God says it's, it's not about this, this being a victim of your conscience and circumstances and it's your upbringing and all these things around you. It's everything that we are dealing with is for God's glory. And so that way God would be glorified. I love problems. I don't always like going through problems. Let me rephrase that. I like problems. You know why? The bigger the problem, the more I get to see God do what I can't do. Think about that. There are many times in our life where the problem is so small, we just solve it, right? And who gets the glory? Man does. We do. We, we, we want to be glorified. We love to build up ourselves. But the reality is, is when we're dealing with life's problems, the idea is to show God's glory to praise and worship the Lord. The reality is, is when we are so focused on our circumstances rather than on God, we develop fear. We develop anxiety. We develop all of these other worldly issues that we deal with. We make the problem bigger because we're trying to glorify self. Because we have a wrong view of ourself versus our view of God. We're not there to glorify God. We're there to try to glorify ourselves. It's amazing as you look at Philippians 2 and, and the way that we're supposed to treat one another in Philippians 2 and, and Paul's view of himself when you get to Philippians chapter 3, you see that he all the good that he could do in his life, all the tools that he had to glorify himself, he said was rubbish. Let that sink in. He was the man, when it came to all relationships in life. He was perfect in the eyes of Rome. He was perfect in the eyes of the rabbis, in the priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. He was the perfect lawyer. He persecuted Christians. Everybody loved him. And yet he was nothing when he came face to face with God. And he said, all my flesh, everything that was good in my flesh is nothing compared to knowing God. God. Here's the thing is, is the gospel addresses every circumstance. It, it, everything that you're dealing with, that you suffer with, every sin that we're struggling with, the gospel answers all of this. What God has done for us, the work of God, that's what God is telling us. And, and, and Christ-centered discipleship and counseling, we see that um, in the book um, that was written in, in uh, Christ-centered biblical counseling, said this, it says, the gospel addresses every circumstance, every suffering, every sinner, as God's people can bear each other's burdens with confidence 
knowing that regardless of the particulars, we will strive for the same goal, deal with the same sin, pursue the same love, fight for the same faith, and pray for the same repentance so that we can all rest in Jesus by the grace and power of the Spirit. As Pastor Rob was reading, and when it says, okay, so you need to know how to, to, how to live in, in God's church, how we're supposed to work together. And chapter 1, chapter 2, and all of these things, as Timothy was dealing with problems in the church in Ephesus, and he comes down, and where does he go? The sum of all of it is all about Christ. It's all about God's work in our life. It's all about God's glory. Man is a bargainer. That's the other philosophy. Bargaining is... Uh, it's psychologically negotiating with oneself. We bargain. Well, if only they did this, then I will do this. It's kind of this 50-50 thing. We become bargainers. Man's philosophy about self is that we, we bargain. When all else fails, we go into bargain mode. If they do this, then I'm going to do this, right? If only my teacher didn't give me this much homework, then I'd be a better student. You know, they, they're really giving me so much that I, I just can't learn. But yet I, I spend two hours on, you know, playing video games at home or watching TV or, I, you know, not at my house. They spend two hours, you know, mucking out the stalls for the pigs. <laughs> they have the perfect uh, answer to video games. <laughs> for every uh, minute of video games, you know, hour in the stalls, right? <laughs> not quite that bad, but that'd be fun. I, w- I, l- I would love it. It'd mean less work for me. But here's the idea we become, society is this way, right? If you will just accept what I want in life, then my life will be better. Have you heard that? That's a bargainer. That's the way we see our culture today. And it's amazing. It doesn't work. Because here's the, the imbalances are inevitable. It, there is no 50-50 in our culture. It's take. There's no giving, it's just taking. It's always, we're never going to be satisfied with what we get. We're always going to want more. That's our flesh. More, give me more. That's why our world is predicated on pleasure. Satan knows that. He's like dangling all these pleasure things in front of us to draw our attentions away from the one who really can change us. And that's why a proper view of ourself is so important because our culture is bombarding us with a wrong view of ourself. In Romans chapter 12, verse 20 through 21, talking about how we view ourselves, he says, God tells us, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, and Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43 says, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. That's perfectly normal, right? We live by that all the time. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The main difference is, is that God said that we should love one another because God is love. He defines love. His love is different than our view of love. 
And the problem is, is we want to view our, we want to love ourselves so much that we enter into all these bargains with things in the world. You know, I just need more. If you truly love me, give me more. But God's saying, that's not love. Love is just sacrificial. It's based on what God did for us when he died on the cross for our sins. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? In in Philippians chapter 2. His mindset was not that he's like, look, I deserve to be on the throne. My right is to be on the throne. Worship me. You have no rights. But he said, look, they're, they're, they're falling over themselves. They're sinners. They need help. So he came to save us, to become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. There was no bargaining. It was here is my gift for you. I alone can do the work that you can't do. That's the idea that there is really no bargaining. It's, it's really that God has done everything. And we need him. Another great book on discipleship and counseling. I don't even know how to pronounce this last name. I'd butcher it. Uh, I think it's Paul Tagus or it's just spelled weird, but it's a great book. Nonetheless, it's called Counseling One Another. It's a great book on discipleship. Um, It's, forget the counseling title, it's just about helping one another. And he wrote this, he says, when comparing the secular view of man, that is man's problems is because a low view of himself, compared to with God's view of man and God's law, man's root problem is his idolatrous self, that he loves himself too much you realize, and it's obvious, that they are solar systems apart, right? Two drastic views. One says you don't love yourself enough, and the other one says you love yourself too much. Rather than identifying self-doubt or low self-esteem as a source of society's ills, the apostle says that the problem is that men are lovers of self. And depraved man is not filled with self-doubt. He is boastful and arrogant. Self-love is nothing short of idolatry. The worship of self, the core problem that Jesus came to deliver us from. One of the greatest errors of the modern church is it's shifting away from the biblical emphasis of the person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ towards a message that addresses man's alleged psychological needs, which is, in the end, Glorifying self and not Christ. In short, the gospel of integrationism has changed Jesus, our Savior, into Jesus, our therapist. That's why we have churches full of feel-good messages. And he goes on and on. Paul said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, another great Timothy 3 passage. It says, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For, and that's, right? And it's just going to keep coming. When you look at the world, does it look like it's getting better or worse? And I always hear all of my grandmas and grandpas and great-grandmas and great-grandpas, they said, man, it, it's just not like it was when I was a kid. <laughs> I hear that all the time, right? I was teaching somebody to butcher the other day, and he goes, man, that's old school. I was like, I know, I learned from a succession of great-grandpa, grandpa, and, you know, great-grandpa, and grandpa, and dad, right? I learned all the old-school stuff, and uh, dealing with a, a group of uh, a Ukrainian crowd, and they're like, whoa, you do it old-school, we like you, because <laughs> they were afraid to butcher in front of me, because 
it wouldn't look like you know, the, the butcher shop or it wouldn't look like the grocery store. And I said, don't worry about it. The only problem is, is they like to eat raw um, pig fat. Ugh. It, tasted, it tasted almost like butter, though, on bread. But, <laughs> but here's the thing. He says, for people, what's the difficulty? I digress. <laughs> for people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, disobedience to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You get that? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power Avoid such people. So kind of, here's, here's the, the main difference as we look at this. The lover of pleasure or the lover of self versus the lover of God. Is it self-oriented or love of self? And here's the thing. If you love yourself and you pursue yourself and everything is about you and it's about self, that negates everyone around you, including the Lord. The more you elevate self, the more you mitigate or the more you push down your view or trust of what God does and can do. And here's the day, the man becomes his own God. That's been the reality for a long time. And that's been the purpose from Genesis to now. It's not, nothing is new is man's view of self and their perpetuation of trying to, to be good and feel good and make themselves better is really the re- they've been replacing God for years, for centuries. Not only that, but there is no love for God. So if you love yourself and you love pleasure, you push God out. There's no room for God anymore. We see that in society all the time. No love for God. There's no redemptive work of Christ. There's no more gospel. There's why so many churches, it's more about feeling good than it is about the good news of The work of God, it becomes about your work, your ability. You can change. Be the better you. That was actually a message at another church. Right? And when asked about the gospel from a non-believer, that preacher, right, on live TV said, well, the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one, and that the only way to heaven is through Christ and his work on the cross and his payment for our sins. This is a non-believer saying that to this pastor of a so-called Christian church that just said, you can be the better you. You have it within you to be better. And so you need to live that. And he says, isn't it not true? And he goes, well, I'm not sure. That was his answer to the gospel being given to him He said this on live TV. I'm not sure. And he turned to John MacArthur and says, what do you have to say? (laughs) MacArthur went off. (laughs) And so I love it because he doesn't care who he's talking to, when he's talking. Just go look at his interview with Ben Shapiro. I was awesome. And I love it. And Ben loved it. He says, I appreciate the conviction and the truth that you come from Scripture. And it was great. Here's the, the idea, there's no gospel and there's no work of the Spirit. If there's no gospel, there's no Spirit working. And how do we change? How does our heart change to the work 
of the Holy Spirit in our heart. He changes us. He gives us the power to change. He gives us the freedom to change. He gives us the ability to obey God. The more we pursue ourself, the less the work of the Spirit. The more we pursue God through the gospel, the more the Holy Spirit works and bears fruit in our life. And because there's no work of the Spirit, there's no sanctification or restoring us to the image of God. We struggle. We take on more of the image of the world and less the image of God. You say, well, a lot of times we look at it and it's like, I go to church, I read the Bible, I do all these good things, and why am I not changing? Why am I struggling? What's the problem? And we see that in James chapter 1, right? Don't we? He says, you know, count it all joy when you face various trials. I don't know about you, but if you live life, you face what? Trials. <laughs> the only way you don't face trials is if you're not living. <laughs> and and, and I, I bless, bless Marilyn. She woke up. She, she's been, you know, you know that she's in, in the process of going home to see the Lord. And she's ready. She's like, I'm just so ready to go home and see the Lord. And she goes, and I wouldn't mind seeing my husband either. <laughs> and she's talking, she, but she's, she's been sleeping. And she woke up and she goes, why am I not home? <laughs> right? There's something to be said about being at home with the Lord. It's much better. If we're alive, we're going to face various trials. She was, the, her family said this morning, she woke up and she's like, man, I'm still not home. And she was smiling. She joked around a little bit. She's feeling a little bit better. But here's the thing. This is verse 4. Why, do, why don't we, you know, he says, if we have problems... Ask God for wisdom, right? In verse 4, he says, let steadfast, steadfastness or you know, persevering through our trials have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives it generously without reproach and it will be given to him. But if you ask, in, but let him ask in faith with not, no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. You know Sometimes you just feel like life is out of control. Have you ever watched a ship that's being driven by a storm? It just pitches and, and gets thrown by the waves and the wind. Sometimes we feel like that in life. Right? It's just one struggle after another, one hit by a wave after another. And that's what God is telling us when there's doubt involved. But we should trust the Lord. Verse 7 it says, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded. And it's where the word, by the way, that's where we get the word, hip, or, uh, um, oh my gosh, schizophrenic. Double-minded and unstable in all his ways. He's being torn in two different directions. Our view of ourself is really important. Do we trust ourselves? And all of our imperfections and all the imperfections of the world, or do we trust a perfect, holy God? But God, or, uh, Paul shows us a great illustration of how we should view ourselves. Look at the progression that Paul shows us. And, and it's interesting because every single one of these is written years before one another. The first one was in 55 AD. And the first time he mentions this, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15.9. This is written about 55 AD. He says, I am the least of all apostles. So how does he view himself? He's the least. He's the bottom tier. He means that 
He, he doesn't have any footing or any standing. He, they, nobody should look at him as being the most important. But yet there are some that say he is the most important because he's the one who spent you know, three years with Christ in the desert. And Paul talks about that, but he, he refuses to talk about himself in the first person, so he talks about himself in the third person. Talk about schizophrenic. <laughs> but, he, 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 but he refers to himself as the least, right? And lo- listen to how he says. He says, and not fit to be called an apostle. I am so much the least, I shouldn't even be called one because he persecuted the church. I'm just a sinner. You see that? That's how he's, he's like, why? I shouldn't have any standing. We jump forward a few years, about six years, and he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, and in, in written about 61 AD, he says, to me, I, I am the very least of all saints. So he says, I'm not just the least in the apostleship, but when it comes to all believers, guess what? I am the least. To me, he says in verse 8, he says, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to me. I don't deserve it, but this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. How great Christ is, the work of Christ. He says, I can't believe it. I shouldn't have this ability to do this. I'm the least of every believer, he says, of all believers. Fast forward, as time goes on, right? Another 12 years, six years, now 12 years. Look how he says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. I am the foremost of all sinners. Now he classifies everyone on earth because they all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In verse 15, he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. We should all accept it, he says, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Do you see this progression? As he grew in his relationship with Christ, Christ, how did he view himself? His elevation of self just kept going down and down and down. But how did he talk about God? He elevated. The more he went down, the more he elevated God. I want you to think about that. The longer and closer a person walks with Jesus, the more he or she becomes aware of the depths and depravity of our sin in our nature and our flesh. Like Paul said in the end of Romans 6, and, Romans, and he goes on in Romans 7, which in turn drives us to a greater sense of horror about who we really are. But as we realize who we really are, it, it run, helps us to run to a Christ with a greater appreciation of his great mercy. You ever wondered how great the mercy of God is? Think about how unworthy we are in God's eyes, and yet we wake up every morning. We don't deserve to wake up. That's why, that's why the psalmist said, in the, you know, his mercies are renewed every morning. Early in the morning I wake up. I hated that verse. For years I hated that verse. Now I wake up at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> and I, I remember when my wife said, I love waking up in the morning. It's so amazing. I get so much done. And I said, yeah, it's so dumb. 
and my wife caught me the other day, and, she, and, she, and somebody was saying, oh, it's horrible that you wake up so early. And I say, it's great. I get so much work on the farm done. And my wife said, <laughs> remember? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I remember. <laughs> we learn a lot from this passage in 1 Timothy 3, and we learn a lot from this passage in 1 Timothy 1 and, 1, and 2 Timothy 3. We learn this. Here are the results of really looking at ourselves and not trying to make ourselves and having a high view of self, but realizing who we really are because of our sin. We have a closer walk in relationship with Christ, just as Paul did. You too. You ever wonder why your relationship with the Lord just struggles so much? Have you ever thought about that you spend most of your time in your life trying to make yourself feel better? We don't have to do that. Because God died for you. He already told you, told you how much you're worth. That he sent his son to die on the cross to take away your sin. You deserve all of God's wrath, but yet Christ stood in between and took it for you. Why spend all your life trying to make yourself feel better? When we realize who we really are, our view of God just, just explodes. And our relationship with God and our relationship with Christ, it just is magnified. We have a greater awareness of our sin. Because let's face it, when you come face to face with a great God, that just humbles you, doesn't it? Right? That's why we struggle when we come face to face with great people, right? We, we see, I remember, you know, I, I, I was in the, the, I was in Israel and, and Hillary Clinton walked by and I was like, oh, that was great. And there was a few people following her, but then Evander Holyfield walked by. <laughs> and he had just beaten uh, Mike Tyson and he walked by to the Wailing Wall and there was a throng of people. And I was, it was amazing how people view greatness, right? And it was like, it is crazy. We value greatness and we put all these values to greatness. But the real, when we feel small, right? Man, he was a huge guy. He was gigantic. I was like, holy cow, his arms are like my legs. <laughs> I was like, man. But he was so humble. He was just like, you know, hey. I want to go worship the Lord. I remember him talking to the crowd and just say, hey, could you guys just, you know, leave me alone for a little while? And he just said, I want to go worship the Lord. But here's the thing. When we come face to face with God, there is no great. There's just a great God. A.W. Tozer, or I'm sorry, not, not an A.W. Tozer, another A.W., A.W. Pink, in the, the book called Sovereignty of God, he said this, he said, Oh, what superficial view of, of man's desperate plight are now entertained. Right? This is a long, long time ago. Right? Even before today, right? He didn't know what was going to go on today. He said, What superficial view of man's desperate plight are now entertained? Christ came here not to help those who were willing to help themselves, but to do for his people what they were incapable of doing for themselves. Think about that. And then he quoted Isaiah 42, 
Listen, he says, to open the blind eye, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prisons of their house. That's what Christ came to do, to give us real freedom. I want to close with 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to skip through this passage for the sake of time. Right, because we already read part of it, but he said, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of themselves. Verse 5, or in the end of verse 2, he says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. When we have the wrong view of self, we tend to have the wrong view of godliness. When we have the wrong view of self, we tend to have the wrong power at work in our life. We have the appearance of godliness and of the power of God in our life, but we burn out. We struggle. We give up. We fail. We treat people badly. That word profess or they have the appearance of godliness or it's the idea of professing godliness. It's to know God but by their deeds, they deny him. They say they know God. They profess to know God with their mouth, but they don't follow God. They deny him with what they do. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed, Titus 1.16 says, a true relationship with God is not a matter of knowledge and a profession of one, but, the, but of knowledge and practice of obedience and love for God. That word for power is dunamis. That's where we get dynamite. That they have no power. They have no explosion. It refers to power residing in something because of its nature and referring to, what, to that which overcomes resistance. It's a power that can overcome all resistance. So they say that they're godly, but they're denying the true power and nature of God that really would help them to overcome the resistance of the things in this world. By the way, that's what Paul was saying when we started Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Why? For salvation, for everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. It's the way Paul, he said the gospel came, the Jews were the first ones to hear the gospel, but then it was for everyone else, to the, then to the Greek. Verse 17, for, talking about the power of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Here's the, the power of God is in the gospel. It releases and gives us our faith, it gives us the ability to do right and good things. Our goodness doesn't come because we can change and we can be good, but because God is good and his work is good. For the gospel to really take full effect in our life, for it to really mean anything, we need to realize that we're just sinners. We're nothing. God is everything. When we realize that, we bring nothing to the table. We trust God. We submit to God. We have an absolute love for God. 
Now, we still live in the flesh, which means we fail, right? We still go to the mirror and we have to polish the mirror. Oh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> That's what God wants us to remember. And we have to constantly polish that mirror up. And we go to church. We, we worship together. remind us of the glory of God. We read God's word to remind us the greatness of God. And we're like, oh, yeah, that's right. And this is who I am. And every step of the way, Paul said, his view of himself got lower and lower and lower. But his work for God got greater and greater and greater. His love for God got greater and greater and greater. His forgiveness, by the way, of people got greater. <laughs> Do you remember the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey? There was that guy named John Mark. And he says, I won't take him because he, he ran out on us. He's not a good guy, right? In the beginning of his ministry, he said, and they, they fought over Barnabas and him. He said, no, I'm not taking your cousin, John Mark, <laughs> or your nephew. I'm not going to take him. He, he, he ran out on us, let him, you know, go. Barnabas said, no, I'm going to take him with me. Later on, at the end of Paul's life, he said, hey, go get John Mark. He's useful for the ministry. You notice his view of himself got worse, but his ministry of the gospel got greater. His view of people got more forgiving. How do you, how's your relationship with others? How's your relationship with the Lord? It really depends on how you view yourself. Are you living the way the world tells you to live? Or are you living the way God tells you to live? How you view yourself will determine your relationship, not only with others, but with God. I want you to be encouraged. What kind of church do we want to be? We want to continue to be the family church. It doesn't excuse people's sins, but loves people through their sins. That really magnifies the gospel. That really calls our culture to Christ. To see change happen. In order to truly be a disciple-oriented church, we need to have a right view of ourselves. Do we see ourselves as nothing but sinners? Saved by grace. Do we magnify the cross or do we magnify our life? I personally, I, the bigger the cross, the, the smaller my problems are. I want to magnify that. When I find myself struggling with problems, I find that I've removed myself from the cross. I've walked away from it. And I'm like, forgive me, Lord. I need to magnify you, not me. And it's hard sometimes. I know. But every time I come back to him, it grows my vision of him. My, my view of him grows. And, my, and he blesses me because he wraps his arms around his child and reminds me I'm just his child. Where are you in your view of God and your view of yourself? Is he your father in heaven? Is his name hallowed in your prayers, in your thoughts? Or are you being magnified day by day and are your problems growing? You can change, but because God will change you. Lord, I thank you for the gospel and what it means to us. I thank you for this, uh, this thought that you give us, this truth, this nugget, that we need to see ourselves in a different way than the world says to view ourselves. 
So Lord, may we learn and take away from this and, and may it help us in our relationships, first and foremost with you, secondly with those around us in the family of God, but thirdly also with our community, with our culture. Lord, if we truly are going to be a disciple church, a counseling church, a church that, Lord, we have to love you more and love ourselves less. But in doing that, we can love others more. Just as you told us the greatest commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. May we do that in order to love each other better. Lord, thank you for your message, for your words of truth and how it helps us to have a right view so we can live the godly life that you have prepared beforehand for us to do to bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.